0: here we are journeying through the gospel of John so we're going to be this morning you can open your bibles to John chapter 13 we'll do a little word association game this morning school is out but we're going to put school back in session here for a second for all the kids you you may may not have to tell me you may not have to have me tell you what the following names have in common probably many of you undoubtedly know but here we go Marcus Brutus, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Benedict Arnold, Edmund Pavinci from the Chronicles of Narnia. These are all infamous what? Traitors. Very good. And here in our text this morning, John is in the middle of this four-chapter journey in the upper room, what theologians often call the upper room discourse. He's mere hours away from going to the cross. And here he is saying these last words, giving these last instructions, parting, parting charges to, to the disciples, And then he ta- but he takes this opportunity to commit a whole section, John does, to this most notorious traitor in all of human history, the traitor upon whom is the prototype and the pattern for all other traitors, and people sing about them and put... Put him into poems and include him into prayers and parables and movies. And this will be none other than, of course, Judas Iscariot. And that's where we're going to park it this morning. And we're going to learn something about Judas this morning. But but more importantly, we're going to learn something about betrayal and about ourselves and, most importantly, about God. And so if you are able and willing to stand, please do so for the reading of God's Word We're going to be camping out in verses 18 through 30, but let me read the first, the two verses prior to sort of give us a a running start into the text. And Jesus is speaking. He says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen.' But the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me, or whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. But But now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this may not be what a lot of us were necessarily expecting this morning to be walked through the most painful story of betrayal in the history of the universe and to have that story be a window into our hearts and who we are and the warnings that are in this passage. Lord, We weren't expecting that, some of us, so we need your grace. We need your grace for these words not to just dribble off the end of this podium, Lord, but we need you to accomplish what only you can accomplish. Lord, send forth your word. Let it not return to you void. Lord, let it conform us, change us, shape us into your image. Lord, that's what we're asking this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. The title of this sermon is bitter betrayal, sovereign savior. Bitter betrayal, sovereign savior. And there's three things that we want to say about betrayal this morning. Number one, we want to talk about the reality of betrayal. Number two, the warning of betrayal. And then finally, last, the comfort in betrayal. So let's look at the reality of betrayal. You know, many of you, some of you, incidentally, are, are heading to, to Italy this, this summer, and all I can say is a plague upon your souls for not taking me, but if you, if you are one of these fortunate few that go to go to Italy, you might want to stop off in Milan, and there is a convent there, and one of the most recognizable paintings in the history of the world, painted by none other than Leonardo da Vinci, right? Okay, what is the, what is the painting I'm referring to? The Last Supper. And if you've seen this painting, it's very famous. It's very photo... The disciples are very photogenic in this painting. And they're all held around this table. They're seated and there's Jesus in the middle. And you get a great shot of everybody. The only problem with that painting is that da Vinci got it wrong. Okay? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because... Yeah, you like that. Um, because if you understand what we talked about a couple of weeks ago... This is not how the Last Supper went down. Now, typically, Jews would eat seated around a table, but on very, very special occasions, they would do what is called reclining at table. Now, reclining at table was a Roman custom that the Jews over time adopted, only, though, for very special occasions. And and, and the way this would work is that the seats uh, would be, or or the places around the table would be situated on the floor in a U-shaped and, and you would go and, and, and you wouldn't sit at a chair. You would lay on the floor or on a mat and you would kind of rest your head on your left arm. That would free your right arm to do what? Stuff your pie hole. Okay, that's what you would do. So your feet would be pointed away from the middle of the table. Don't want to get those guys, okay, into the action. And you would sit and you're all facing each other. You're leaning on your, your, your left shoulder, your elbow. You're, you're stuffing food into your face and, and this is how it's, how it's kind of laid out. John, now this is interesting. Remember, John is an eyewitness, and when you read this story, this whole tale, this whole story is just dripping with authenticity. I mean, this is someone who didn't hear it from a, hear it from a friend and all that sort of stuff. This is someone who was there who was by Jesus' side. He, he's not picking this up from oral tradition. He's reflecting back on 60 years prior to this most amazing, pivotal meal in the history of the universe. It's, it's, he calls it immediately to mind, just like we call to, to mind those special occasions when we think about we were on this vacation or we were having this dinner or this particular thing was going on. It's just breathing specificity, authenticity and depth. And John begins this narration by identifying himself look back at the text verse 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now this is the first of four times that that John refers to himself in this way. And this is it can sound like an ego trip, it's not an ego trip. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you were someone who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, wouldn't you want to put your name in the story? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Remember, when, we, when I was little, my parents, we would order these books for our birthdays, and it's one where you can put your kid's name in the story, right? Wouldn't you want to put your name in the story if you were kind of like BFFs with Jesus? John does not. He just simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If nothing else, it displays this aspect of a relationship based upon grace. Jesus is the one that chose John. Jesus is the one that pursued John. Jesus is the one that loved John first. Now, saying all that, nonetheless, it is very clear from this gospel and from church history that John enjoyed a very special, unique relationship to Jesus. We know that at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross— and, and, and Jesus' own mother, Mary, is there with the other women in Jesus' entourage. There's one disciple who makes it to the end, to the cross. And who is that? It's John. And Jesus, looking down at John and Jesus' mother, Jesus says what to John? John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And it says, from that day on, and church history tells us this, tradition that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived with John the rest of her life. So they had a very special, very unique relationship, which is pertinent to this passage, because Jesus is about to make a declaration that's going to blow them out of the water. Look at verse 21. He makes the pronouncement, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, I'm not exactly sure what happens immediately after that pronouncement. Maybe it's stunned silence. Maybe there's just like this pregnant pause when everybody is just like terrified to think, who is he talking about? What is going on? But what it becomes clear is that this is immediately followed by this explosion, by this buzz, by this commotion. The disciples start talking and pointing fingers, and they are confused. And they are, they're asking, Lord, is it me? We here in Matthew, they, in fact, they go around the table. Lord, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And you can just tell there's this, this, this tension, there's this buzz, this talking. And in the middle of all this, apparently Peter is lying or reclining right next to John. And it's, and understand, John is on the right hand of Jesus, a seat of amazing honor. And Peter is right next to John. And John he says here in the text that, that Peter motions to John in some way. And you, you got to love Peter, impatient Peter, right? He just got to know. Who is it? Jesus, tell, me, tell, me, tell, me, tell, me. who is it? Who is it? Who is it? It's like parents, when you try to show one of your kids something on your phone, right? And what do all the other kids want to do? Let me see, let me see, let me see. Okay, that, that's Peter in this. And so, so he motions to, to John. And John emits all this buzz, and I think this is happening over to the side. I think it's clandestine. I think it's quiet. Remember, John is leaning on his left elbow, and he probably turns and leans back like this, because Jesus is right next to him and says, Jesus, who is it? No one one hears this. No one hears this. They're, They're too busy worrying about whether it's them or not, or who it is. And Jesus, responding right back, says... It's the one that I will give the bread to. Something you need to know about Jewish feasts is that there was merely one seat of honor. There were two seats of honor, on the right and on the left. Remember, the disciples were always arguing about who will sit on your right and who will sit on your left. But the supreme seat of honor at a Jewish feast was not the person who sat on the right. It was the person who sat on the left, and it was the tradition to give this honored guest a piece of bread as a symbol of familiarity and friendship and devotion and token. And it says here that Jesus dips the bread. It's kind of this morsel where you sop up all the, the goodness in the bottom of the bowl, right? And, and, he, and he puts meat in it and he hands it to Judas. Do you see where we're going with this? For him to hand it to Judas, and, and scholars think that this is most likely the case, it was Judas who sat there in the seat of honor. John on his right, leaning upon his breast, Judas on his left, where Jesus could just simply hand the bread to him. And Now, we don't know if how Judas ended up there. We don't know if, G- if Judas kind of wormed his way in and elbowed everybody else out of the way. We don't know, and we'll talk about this at the end, maybe, maybe it was sort of a, a last gas effort on the part of Jesus as a, an offer of grace, an offer of mercy. We, we, we don't really know, but what we do know is that this is a fulfillment of what we read in verse 18 from Psalm 41. And let's read, let's read that verse um, together again. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now the original context, Jesus is quoting there, Psalm 41, 9, a psalm of David that David wrote when he was betrayed. By whom? His own son, Absalom. This idea of raising the heel or raise your heel. That, that's kind of confusing to us, but actually it's a, it's a euphemism that's carried down from ancient culture even to the present day. So if you remember when the U.S. invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein, people, the, 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 the population was so overjoyed they were pulling Saddam's statue down, and what else were they doing to that statue? Hitting it with what? Their shoe. The ultimate sign of disrespect. Not long after that, George W. Bush was at a press conference. Someone threw what at him? A shoe. Because it's the ultimate sign of disrespect. To raise your heel literally means to show someone the back of your foot. In other words, it's the last thing they see before you walk out. Before you abandon. Before you stick the knife in. See, eating bread at the table of a superior in that culture was a big deal. See, eating bread was, this, was a symbol, it was a token, it was an affirmation that I'm with you, I support you, I am loyal to you as your subordinate, I'm a part of your team. Which makes this episode doubly treacherous. Jesus says, the one whom I give this bread to, they have been my friend. They've walked with me. They've talked with me. They've prayed with me. But they're even now plotting to take me down. You know, betrayal, in order to be betrayal, is by definition done by those who are close to us. Those whom we think we can trust those whom have been with us for a long time. I bet if we were to do a little open mic session and I was to ask you to think of your greatest betrayal, the one instance or two instances in your life where you have felt the greatest amount of betrayal targeted toward you, I would venture to say that that most of you would have no trouble thinking of something like that. In fact, as I'm talking right now, as soon as you heard we're gonna talk about betrayal, your mind went right to it. Maybe it's a failed marriage where your spouse walked out on you and left you with the kids and the bills and the responsibilities. Maybe it's marital unfaithfulness. Parents, maybe it's something your children have done. They took 20 or 22 years of investment that you made into their life and literally blew it up in smoke. Maybe there's been a betrayal on the job. Maybe someone had had made a promise to you about a career path and a trajectory and a dream and only to shut the door on you. Maybe you were backstabbed by a subordinate who now occupies the position that you believe is rightfully yours. See, I think if we were to go around and ask, what is your greatest betrayal, most of us would have no problem whatsoever bringing something immediately to mind. You know, here's the thing about betrayal. Isn't this right? You don't ever fully forget it. It's, it always lingers just a little bit. Even years, you can find yourself waking up in the middle of the night dreaming about that thing, thinking about that thing. It's kind of like Frodo. When he goes across to the Grey heavens across the sea, He's going to a happy place, but he always will in this life carry the wound from the blade of Mordor. That's what treachery, that's what being betrayed is like. Betrayal by definition is done by those closest to us. but, But secondly, listen to this. Betrayal by definition is also unexpected, we don't see it coming. And when you look at the text, it's very clear, even at this point, the disciples are completely blindsided about this betrayal. They have no idea. Okay, look at verse 22. It says, the disciples looked at one another and they were what? Uncertain. It was not clear. There wasn't an obvious candidate. Everybody didn't pivot and say, oh yeah, it's that guy. No, no one knew. In fact, they all went around, Matthew tells us, and said, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? It's not immediately clear to them who this person is. So thoroughly had Judas deceived them that despite the warnings from Jesus all through his gospel ministry, they still had no idea. Even when Judas stood up, you would have thought at that moment, oh, well, okay, of course, this was the obvious choice. No, no, no. They thought he was going to attend to the duties that he had as the money keeper. He was going to give alms to the poor. He was going to take care of the provisions for the feast. And this tells us something important, and this is really crucial to understand. And this, is, this comes so painfully to some of us because we just, sometimes we, We think, how in the world did that possibly happen to that person? See, it tells us something about the nature of traitors. It tells us something about the nature of sin. Traitors are good at what they do. Judas, under the radar, three years. People who lived wife with him, had accountability with him, prayed with him, listened to him, walked with him, ate with him, slept with him, had a life with him, He deceived. Now, some of this may be anachronistic on my part, and something I'm reading into the text from my first 21st century context, but I envision Judas as a winsome, charming, good-looking dude. He's in control of the money. Who do we put in control of the money in places? People we trust, people we respect, people who are highly skilled. He's seated at Jesus's left hand. I see him as a God filled with ambition and greed. And not to get too psychological, but some sort of high degree of pathology and narcissism and duplicity, a man full of guile. See, and what makes these kinds of betrayals? so excruciating is when they happen in the church. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I I was in a group with him. He was in my community group. We were in a women's Bible study together. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was an elder. We are people who vacation together, eaten together. We've shared life together. Our kids go to school together. Maybe it's some sort of theological abandonment. Whatever it is, form it takes, it's always excruciating. See, that's the reality of betrayal. And let me just say something about this, because I think this is the way it's always going to be in a fallen world. Accountability can only go so far. I think Judas was probably a pretty accountable kind of dude by the way we measure accountability. But please understand this, And I'm all for accountability. I'm all for transparency and integrity, and that's baseline Christianity 101. But if you want to deceive, you can do it. If you want to hide sin, you can do it. You could do it for weeks, months, years, decades. There have been a number of situations that have been in the news over the last several years where well-known pastors, ministry leaders have, have died or committed suicide. And it's only later that we find out that next to their tomes of theological discourses and amazing sermons was a hidden life of sin and infidelity and adultery. Guys, transparency can only go so far. You can hide sin if you want to hide sin. But, but only for a season, maybe a long season. That season may extend even into eternal judgment, but it will happen. That is the reality of betrayal. Secondly, the warning of betrayal. Now here I want to kind of talk about two kinds of of treacherous acts. Those that are done to us, and the second one is going to be particularly hard, those that are done by us, to us and by us. So the warning of betrayal. Interestingly, that Jesus says in this text, it's not just that betrayal is a reality, but actually, interestingly enough, he promises that it will be so in this life. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, two interesting things about that that verse. One, that's commissioning language. That's the kind of language that we hear in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We hear at the end of John. We hear in Acts. As I've gone and told people about the good news, now I'm sending you to go on my behalf and be the good news. As much as I went, now I send you in my place. You're my ambassador. That's an honor. We carry authority as Jesus' representatives. There's that language that's in there, absolutely. But we have to ask, why would John put that? Why would Jesus say that right here in the middle of this section on treachery? The reason he does is I think that he's reminding us of something. See, Jesus is reminding us that, as we read earlier, no servant is greater than his master. And as much as we receive the authority of Jesus as we go out on his behalf, we are also identified with him, whether people receive us or, listen, reject us. Because the converse is also true. You could state this in the negative and say this, whoever rejects the one I send, that would be you and me, rejects me. Whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. See, we have to understand fundamentally, and this is so important, We have to understand what it means biblically to be a Christian. What we do as Christians is absolutely fundamentally important, but it's not foundational. Being a Christian is foundationally one of being identified with Jesus Christ, that in him, he chose us before the foundations of the world to be adopted, to be holy and blameless, to be elected, to be predestined, to be identified with him. When you were a Christian, you were fundamentally saying, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. And if people reject Jesus, they reject me. If people accept Jesus, they accept me. If people reject me, they reject Jesus. This is a fundamental passage about identity. Jesus is reminding us, not just reminding us, he's promising us, so will it be with his people in this life. If you identify with Jesus Christ, you are not less susceptible to treachery, but you're more likely to experience it. That's a promise of Jesus. This is why Jesus says, look at verse 21. It says, Jesus is troubled in spirit, stirred up, agonized, this word is used three or four other times in John's gospel, always, always, without exception, in reference to death. Isn't that interesting? He says it about Lazarus. Jesus was stirred up. Jesus was in great agony. Jesus was, was worked up all about the horror of human death. I think John and Jesus are reminding us is that that is what betrayal is. That's what betrayal is feels like. It feels like a death, doesn't it? It feels like a death. Sometimes it's worse than a death because we can't get rid of it. It's like a cancer that lingers and eats away at us. But what is it that troubles Jesus here? And here's the difference in what Jesus is experiencing and what we often experience. See, when we're betrayed, we groan for ourselves, don't we? oh my goodness, this is so painful, this is so awful, and it is. But see, I think Jesus is groaning for Judas because he knows what this means for him. Matthew 26, 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Now listen to this, and this is just sobering. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, we have to remember something about betrayal. Betrayal, human betrayal, is always a symptom of an underlying problem of betrayal between a person and God. See, that's the fundamental betrayal that happens among humanity that gives birth to what we experience as as human betrayal. Betrayal. This is why Jesus is so worked up. He, he's, he knows the implications. He knows what this means for Judas if he continues on this path. And it's a great reminder for us that by God's grace, when someone has betrayed us, we pray for the grace to understand not just what it means for me, but what does it mean for them? Because what it means for them is far worse See, this is why Jesus, David says, this is even after he's been betrayed by his own son, a son who's never repented. What is what is what in parents? You get this, right? David says, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. It's hard. It's broken. Is there a category for forgiveness for you in betrayal, as hard as that might seem to be? Now, when I say that, understand something. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation, and oftentimes it doesn't. For some of you, you've been betrayed. Reconciliation is not just impossible, it's also unadvisable. Maybe there's been abuse, or maybe someone's in jail, or maybe someone has been unrepentant. I say this knowing there's a hundred complex situations that require wisdom and mercy and grace and counsel to, to sort through what we're called and what we're not called to do. I'm just simply asking a question right now. Do you have a category for forgiveness? So one kind of betrayal is the betrayal that happens to us. It's promised. But there's a second kind of betrayal. It's not just to us, but it's by us. It's by us. See, what there's another reason I think this passage is, is located here. It's a warning. It's a, it's a reminder not to be caught off guard, not to believe that you're ever beyond the pale when it comes to betrayal. This is why we see the repeated warnings in Scripture. What does Paul say? Demas was with me, but now what? He's abandoned me. He's gone. Fell in love with the world. Alexander the coppersmith, he, he caused me great harm. John himself, in his epistles, I think reflecting upon this situation, tells them, he calls them little children. Where did he get that? Little children. But he says, there are those who've been among you, but they've gone out from you. But they never really were a part of us. See, there's warning after warning after warning from Scripture. It's a reminder to us that were, do you know this? As a human being, you have amazing capacity made in God's image, and I do too, to do amazing things as God's representative and ambassador. Amazing things. But as people fallen, sinful, who've marred the image of God, we have amazing capacity to mess up our lives. We have an incredible capacity to blow our lives apart and by extension and circumstance, those of us that we love most all around us. That's why Scripture says, be on guard. Here are just a few verses. Let these kind of just rest on you. Galatians 6, 1 and 3. And remember, listen to how Paul addresses them. He says, "'Brothers, four oaks, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But listen, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted.'" Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's another warning. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Folks, don't be deceived. Our capacity as human beings to to do things, to destroy things, to to blow up things is real. 1 Timothy 4.16. What does Paul tell Timothy? Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching, Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.8. This is a this is a great passage for all of us 21st centuriers who who were focused on our body and health and exercise and eating right and all and Paul says physical training has some value. Yes it does. But training for godliness has eternal value. Focus, it, man, if we just focused half the time on our soul that we do on our bodies. Why does, why does God's, why is God, we could, we could read this on and on and on. Why does God's word take such great pains to, to give us these warnings? Because of our capacity as human beings. And so Jesus makes a declaration, and it's a scary declaration in verse 21. He says, Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. Amen. Amen. Some one of you will betray me. See, Judas' betrayal was total. It was irrevocable. It says Satan entered him. And so what does this mean for Judas? It means Judas may have appeared as a believer. He may have functioned in the community of faith like so many of us. He had the veneer of spirituality. He served. He did this. He did great things. Jesus' words, remember, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, Lord, did we not do amazing things in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. And it closes this passage and it says, and it was night. There's the irony of ironies, right? This is what John loves to do. It was, the sun was going down, but not just physically, spiritually. And there was no hope left for Judas. The question is, can there be hope left for you and me in the midst of our betrayals, whether we are the betrayer or the betraye. Last point, and we're going to be done. The comfort in betrayal. Look at verse 19. Jesus says just an amazing thing. I'm telling you this now the betra- about the betrayal before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So I want you to think about this. Jesus is John is giving us this passage about betrayal to fit his overall biblical purpose in this book, which is that you and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing in his name have life. He's doing it through a story of treachery. See, it's very easy, and I want to explain why. It's very easy to doubt God in his purposes, is it not through treachery? It's when you think about a broken marriage, you think about a broken relationship. When you think about a shattered dream, very, very difficult, is it not, to see God's hand, God's purposes in it. But what John wants to do is to dispel us of any notion that this is sort of some Shakespearean tragedy, that this is unforeseen, that it's accidental, that it's by fate, it's a surprise. It takes everybody off guard, including Jesus. No, look at verse 18. I know whom I've chosen, Jesus says. And Jesus is not talking about salvation there, the electing purposes of salvation. It's the same thing he says earlier in John when he says, have not I chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is the devil. Which leads us to the very clear conclusion that Jesus chose Judas knowing what was going to happen. Jesus, clearly all through the gospel, does not show himself as the victim, although he was victimized. He does not show himself as the one who was not in control, who was surprised by every whim of human nature. No, no, no. All through this gospel, John has shown us over and over that Jesus is Lord. Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus acted in accordance with this. In fact, the disciples, they they understand God's sovereign word. They understand Jesus' sovereign word. What do they do when Jesus said, one of you will betray me? Did they say, oh, no, you're, no way, Jesus, no way. No, they knew Jesus spoke truth. They were like, oh my goodness, Lord, let it not be me. See, Jesus is shown here from start to finish as in complete control of his own betrayal. Do you not think that he is in complete control of yours? See, this extends all the way up to the end. See, even when, it's, when he hands the bread to Judas, what does he do? He says, Judas, you might want to think about going out and doing what you're supposed to do. No, no, what, what does he say? He, he, gives, he gives Judas a command He says, what are you about to do? Do quickly. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's authority. And I think John's again reminding us that we can take great confidence and comfort in the providential purposes of God, not despite betrayal, but even through it and in it. See, some of us need to be reminded that sinful man can never ultimately thwart God's sovereign plan. In fact, the very thing that Satan intends for evil to deceive Judas, to turn his heart to betray Jesus, Jesus says, I am using even that to save you. We think about Genesis fifty twenty, where Joseph says, you guys intended all of this for evil. God intended this for good. One more lesson and we'll be done. this is, let me just speak to the existential reality that you might be experiencing this morning if you are in the midst of a scenario or season of betrayal. Let's just all admit something. It is so hard to keep going, isn't it? It's so hard. It's so hard to minister and serve and do what God has called us to do. We think about Single moms raising kids on their own. We think about the way our bodies have betrayed us, or someone may have taken the life of our spouse, or um, we are destitute financially because of the betrayal of someone in our chosen vocation. I, I don't know what that is for you. I just know how hard it is to keep going forward. I wonder what it was like ministering to Judas, if you're Jesus, knowing that he was going to be a traitor from day one. Three years he was with that man, day and night. Knowing what was in the heart of Judas. See, I think Jesus gives us verse 20 because he wants us to keep going. We have a mission to accomplish that despite the betrayals that have happened to us, there is a kingdom to be built, there's a church to be served, there's a family to be raised, there's children to be poured into, there's a small group to be reciprocated to. See, a lot of times in our betrayal, we want to we hunker down, we want to retreat, we want to we hide our face, and Jesus says, go forth because I'm in control. I've got this. I'm going to use your service and your work. That's one lesson last application. You may say, Pastor Paul, that all sounds great. But what if I sit here this morning and I'm the betrayer? I'm the betrayer. That person you're talking about, that's me. In my marriage, with my kids, with my finances, with my responsibilities, with my relationships, there's people I've hurt. There's people who who hate my guts because of something that I've done or said. What's in this for me? And I, I do think there is grace in this passage. And let me show it to you. See, when Jesus offers the bread to Judas, as he would as a token of friendship, a sign of loyalty at that table, I think that was real. And, and don't, don't get all philosopher on me. and the well, God's sovereign plan in the Scripture. Judas was fully responsible for his sin, 100%. But Judas is fully responsible before Satan enters him here to repent. What do you think Jesus would have said if, if Judas had been like, well, I don't think I want to betray you, Jesus. Well, too bad, Judas. Go do what you're going to do. Do you think that's what Jesus would have said? No, the, God's sovereign plan would not be thwarted. Somebody would betray Jesus, the priest. Somebody would arrest him. He'd get crucified. See, there is this last offer of grace to Judas, but he hardens his heart. But you know, he's not the only betrayer in this scene in the upper room. In two weeks, we're going to look at the life and the response of another betrayer named Peter. And he denied Jesus three times. And we have to ask, what distinguished Judas from Peter, who also betrayed him? And it's simply this. Peter ran back to Jesus and said, Lord, I am an unclean man. When Jesus restored him, which we'll get to at the end of John, John 21, Jesus is out fishing, full of shame and guilt and embarrassment. And Jesus simply asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times, he says, I love you. Are you the betrayer this morning? I have one question for you. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, there is hope for you. There might be some work to do. Don't get me wrong. As we come to the table this morning, I would encourage you to be thinking about is there, is there somebody I need to go and make this right with? Is there somebody in my life where I'm offering this gift, gift at the altar, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? If you think about someone, your brother, who has something against you, leave. Go make it right. There might be some business to do this morning. There might be confessing to do this morning, but Jesus offers himself to you. Jesus offers himself to me. Do you love Jesus? There's hope for you. I'm going to ask our leaders to come to the table to get ready to serve these elements. And as they do, here's what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for you just in the privacy of your own heart in prayer before the Lord to say, God, how do you want this scripture to land on me? Who has betrayed that I need to forgive? Who has betrayed that I need to continue to try to love? Who have I betrayed that I need to make right? Lord, how have I betrayed you? Whatever situation God brings to your mind, the answer is the same. Do you love me? Then come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you grace. So folks, just in the privacy of your heart, the next minute or so, just prepare your heart and ask the Lord to speak to you.